Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello and welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number eight. Today we're joined by Jake Elinger, owner of Habitat Solutions. We'll be talking about habitat and hunting strategies for small properties in high-pressured states, and Jake will be sharing an awesome buck harvest story that he caught on film. All right, welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you are listening to episode number eight, where today we're joined by Jake Elinger. Uh, Jake is a habitat consultant specialist and, dare I say, expert in that realm. I've had the good fortune of uh, listening to a few of Jake's uh, or watching a few of Jake's videos and listening to some of his commentary. Super smart guy, uh, very good at what he does, and very excited to talk to him today to pick his brain about all things deer hunting related strategies, especially when it comes to habitat management. Um, He's, you know, again, I'll say an expert when it comes to. Um, dealing with smaller properties and in specific, specifically in states with heavy hunting pressure, which for any of us who live in the Pennsylvania and Michigan type of areas are very familiar with that. But before we dive into the phone conversation with Jake, I know it's been a few weeks, might have forgotten what he sounded like, but I am joined by Phil Marchek again. How's it going, can Phil? Never for, can never forget Notorious Phil Marchek. I'm here. That's right, the notorious P H I L. I know that didn't <laughs> rhyme, but you know we'll 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 try. So what's shaking, man? How you been? It's been it's been a little while. It's been a little while. Have uh, some announcements. Uh, one specifically, I'm gonna be a dad again. Bam, bam. It, it still works. It still yeah. works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Was there ever any doubt? <laughs> uh. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> different podcast. Yeah, different podcast. Different genre. No, but um, I know. No, uh, yeah. I, I know. Uh, I of course, for those who don't know, I work with uh, Mich- uh with uh, Phil's wife, um, and I had known for a few weeks, but of course, kept it from the uh, 
the audience here wanted to allow Phil the opportunity to break news. I'm super stoked for you, man. That's awesome. I'm going to have another little hunter around, and I know you're yes, super sir. pumped. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, had a bit of a roller coaster with some, uh, uh, we'll call them red flags, but everything's been cleared up and it seems like everything's good to go. So, um, yeah, awesome. super excited. Now we just play the waiting game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you're, and you're in full on nesting phase, from what I can tell. Yeah, you see the different colors, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Noticing the different colors, and uh, I know I know yeah. you've been busy on the weekends. Yeah, yeah, it's been crazy. It's been crazy. Good, all good things. So that kind of kind of takes the cake there, especially when we dive into talking about deer. I don't know that we can top any of the uh, any of the baby talk, but we'll we'll give it a whirl <laughs> at least. Well, I mean, we we certainly can try. Right um, <laughs> on on the uh, the outdoors front, uh, I sent you the. The photos and video of the new uh, Slayer stand that I put up. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of digging that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good setup, um, and you know there's a lot of a lot of nice rubs in the area, and uh, I cleared out a ton of lanes, so I'm super stoked for it. Nice, yeah, and yeah. I uh, I still have to make it out to check out your uh, to check out your spot. I'll be headed out to your neck of the woods actually. I think this weekend for everyone listening at home. Pennsylvania's archery season actually came in last Saturday, so we're recording this on, I don't even know what today is, the 20th, I think? Um, uh, yep, 20th. Yeah, and this will be out mid-next week is whenever the folks will be listening to this. But um, the deer hunting season came in on September the 9th, uh, 17th, I guess. September 17th, the 17th yeah. was the first day, and it's just in select WMUs in the eastern part of the state. Um, I unfortunately didn't get out last week uh, because I had a few adult responsibilities that popped up. Um, during the course of the weekend. So this weekend will be my first time getting out. And I actually found a little piece of land using some uh, online scouting tools that I think I'm going to hit up. It's still public land, but it's a little bit different spot that I went last year. I've not put boots on the ground here. So this is going to be completely virgin territory to me. So I'm going to have to kind of learn on the fly and see if I can't get anything done. But there's a, it actually butts up against some private land with some, uh, with some crop fields. So there's a little a little finger of timber that kind of pokes out into the crop fields, and there's a nice little kind of pinch point where the where the timber kind of narrows down as you get closer to the crop field. Um, so I'm going to hit that area, drop the pin, you know, and put the GPS coordinates into my GPS. That way, I can find it relatively easily, and hopefully, I'll find a tree to climb around there. But that's my plan for this weekend. You, uh, I know you have some, I think, family obligations this weekend, so you might not get out, right? Yeah, my uh, it's, it's kind of important. My sister's getting married, so you know. Hey, man! Everyone does that at least <laughs> twice. No, <I'm> just... <laughs> I guess I'll stick around for the second time, then. <laughs> right? Like, I'll, ca- I'll catch you on the flip. But you'll be doing it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I feel I feel like the or the early season stuff. I might have to cut into some PTO time to get out. Um, Cause there's that this weekend's the wedding, uh, I think, and the next weekend uh, I have tickets for the Notre Dame Syracuse game on Saturday. Oh, that's right, I forgot about that. Yeah, I'll yeah. actually be back at the farm because that'll be opening weekend at the farm. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So I'm pretty pumped. Uh, I'm pretty pumped about that. I actually talked to Beans, and for those of you that need a reminder, Beans is what <laughs> we uh, how we refer to my father-in-law. Not sure how he got the name or why he got the name, but he's just always known as Beans now. GB. GB. Um, I actually talked to him last night. He was checking some cameras. He was actually on vacation up in the Massachusetts area. I'm not exactly sure where they were at in the state, mm-hmm. but uh, they were up north um, on vacation. And he just got back on Sunday, so he jumped out real quick and checked a couple cameras. Because we actually, uh, I don't think I mentioned this on the podcast, but behind his house, it's, there's about 40 acres of land 
that we never hunt ever. Nobody ever hunts. And every year why? people see, I don't know why. But, well, I do know why, because the cabin at the farm is probably 20 minutes away from the, uh, from the house. So mm. when we're there, we never really think to run up to the house. Now he hunts it every now and then, especially during the week when there's no one there that staying down at the cabin during the course of right. hunting season, he'll jump out and, and hunt back there. That's actually where he took a doe last year but people have seen some nice bucks around there uh it's just a little it's a little bit more of a challenging hunt because there's not any uh it's more big woods style hunting i mean i know pennsylvania is a lot of big woods hunting but there's not really any crop fields near where the house is so there's not like an easy well i know they're coming from here or they're going to have to pass through here uh, right. because this you're, is where the food kinda, source is <laughs> you're you kind of pissing in the wind a little bit yeah until you really kind of start to study it a little bit but we did a quick scout and kind of figured some stuff out we actually saw a nice little eight point on our way through. Um, so he has some stuff on camera there, but he did report at the farm that he had a couple pictures in one of the locations that I kind of earmarked last year. I had a lot of sightings out of it, a couple buck sightings and a camera that I had hung there was where I had gotten most of my good mature buck pictures or what Mm -hmm. you would call mature buck pictures for Pennsylvania. Um, and recheck those cameras because we've kind of been getting snake eyed, you know, rolling snake eyes rather over the course of the summer with our trail camera pictures. We had some really good pictures there in June of the one of the two really nice deer that I was looking, hoping to get some more inventory on, but they never showed back up. And then I did have one nice, uh, eight point that I, that I had a a picture of who was close to a, a a known buck bedding area that I was kind of hunting around last year and had, um, I knew that there was a buck living there and he, he, that's the one that got jumped. So there's a buck that's using that bed again this year. And Mm -hmm. then, uh, in this one area on the, on a parallel path of the mountain, we have a camera and he has a couple nice bucks that were on camera that he just saw yesterday. So I was on the fence as to whether or not I was going to go back the opening weekend because I hadn't had a lot of uh, good Intel from my cameras to tell me to go back to hunt. Um, as of late, but it seems like things have kind of picked up. So I think I'll head back, do a very non-intrusive hunt, kind of stay on the edges until I start to figure some more, some more things out. But that's, that's really what, what I've had going on. I did take my trip to Ohio. I know that we were texting back and forth during that trip and that was a good land of the thick. Yeah, man. I tell you that that was, uh, some of the thickest hiking or hiking through some of the thickest, nastiest stuff that I've ever voluntarily done. No, I've gotten like <laughs> off, off the beaten path on a hunt before and ended up having to make my way through some nasty stuff just cause I was like, I'm not walking around this. I'm just going to barrel through it. I think we've all done that once or twice. Yeah. But, uh, I'm really looking forward to that trip, um, to Ohio even more than I was previously because everything that I saw there just kind of was pointed in the direction of, um, you know, of, of opportunity and potential. I won't say that there's going to be any, you know, serious slaying going on necessarily because it is public land, but Eric was along with us and he's of course hunted that area and, in, in, uh, in a couple of the spots where I, you know, dropped the GPS pin that I'm, I'm planning to go back to. They had some really good sightings over the past couple of years. So, um, I wasn't going in completely blind. Um, it's a, a piece of river bottom essentially, um, with a really kind of steep incline ridge on the opposite side, uh, or not on the opposite side, but just, uh, across the road, I guess you will, the access road from mm-hmm. the, uh, from the river itself. And then the river bottom area is just, I mean, when I say that there's cornfields, there is cornfields and soybeans fields as far as the eye can see. So if, uh, 
I'm definitely going to try to check a couple of those out, especially on evening hunts. There's a couple of nice little pinch points leading into those fields that I kind of uh, got a nice uh, a visual of. Uh, but I spent most of my time in the mountain or in the big woods kind of scouting because I can kind of I can kind of visually figure out or understand where deer are going to come into the fields at and where those pinch points are just from kind of doing drive-bys and quick walkthroughs. Um, but I spent most of my time on the ridges really kind of doing a thorough scout of of the uh of the big timber area and lots of nice rubs um so yeah hopefully hopefully it's holding some promise so we'll see yes i think you probably took the the best approach in in kind of staying a little on the outskirts because if you start concentrating and focusing in on scouting you might you you might end up missing some of the larger some of the bigger pictures so yeah, I tried uh, to I tried to do an inside out approach where I kind of spent some time, you know, driving a lot um, mm-hmm. and just kind of taking in the lay of the land. And then, you know, where I knew that there were areas from when I did my online scouting, I decided to kind of jump out of the truck and, and, and do some hiking. So, I mean, we put in a full day from 8 a.m. We got there at 8 a.m. I think we left, you know, Pennsylvania around 4 a.m. Right. Got there around 8 a.m. and we scouted from 8 a.m. to 5 a.m. And I think in total we scouted seven or eight locations. Nice. So yeah, it was a, it was a full day, but I know we're running up on time here cause we're supposed to dial in, in Jake. So unless there's any late breaking news, I think we can go ahead and get this, uh, get this whitetail party started with Jake Ellinger. Late breaking. Uh, the bow is dialed in. It's official. Watch out. <laughs> news flash slayer news on flash. the move. All right. <laughs> so without further ado, let's go ahead and dial Jake in and get started. All right, we're back and we're joined by Jake Ellinger. I said that correct, right, Jake? That was the pr- yes, correct pronunciation. All right, I'm always embarrassed whenever I get our guests' names uh, mis- mispronounced. It makes me look like I have bad form. But Jake Ellinger is joining us from Habitat Solution 360. As I mentioned during Phil and I's first little uh, upfront part of our podcast here, when he and I just kind of have our BS session, I mentioned that I was really excited to have you on the podcast. I've, you know, of course, have watched a few of your videos. I've heard you speak in various formats. I'll always find it you know absolutely um interesting you have a lot of knowledge when it comes to whitetail not just habitat but hunting strategy and i know you're kind of diving into a few different realms now uh, especially with your habitat background uh, but f- before we get things started how are you doing sir how's michigan treating you this time of year you know really good it's uh, probably a little too warm and a little too dry but you know we have no control over that but other than that michigan's treating me excellent awesome yeah i can uh I can sympathize with the dry weather. We I, we finally got rain the past two days here, at least in the eastern part of uh, of, of Pennsylvania. And I, and I want to say it hasn't rained since like June, is what it feels like. I think um, I think you might be pretty spot on there. I, I was yeah. actually praying for rain. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, my food. I, I've got sorry, a couple go of clients from PA that I talk to, and and they tell me uh, how just terribly dry it's been. So uh, you, you guys are right on with what I've heard. Yeah, it was uh, my food plots early in the year. The spring, I had a hard time getting, well, my first off, my spring uh, or my uh, perennial food plots uh, came back with a vengeance because we got a super wet spring, which I was really excited about. I had to do a lot more mowing of the of the clover field that I w- than I was hoping for. But the challenge was is I couldn't get my, uh, uh, I, had a, I used a power plant mixture um, from one of the, uh, the larger brands that had some soybeans and stuff in it. And, of course, the ground temp had to get to a certain point, but it was just too wet to work the fields for the yeah. longest period of time. And I was just worried I wasn't going to get it in time, but I did manage to kind of get it in under the wire. And, uh, and, and, and all those crops look like they're doing pretty good. 
But before we get started here, I gave just a little bit of background on Phil and I's upfront on you, Jake. Um, but if you could, for those who are listening who maybe aren't as familiar with who you are and, and, and what you do, could you give us just a little bit of background about yourself you know, from a professional perspective and, and what you do in the whitetail world? Sure. Um, I have a, uh, a basically a habitat management consulting company, um, and uh, hunters and landowners contact me and have me come out and visit their properties to uh, basically assess the property throughout the day, and I cover every aspect you can think of, you know, what's good about the property, what's bad, what the deer are doing in areas, what they're not doing, why they're not doing, uh, ideal stand locations, uh, travel corridors, I point out potential food plot locations, bedding locations, uh, entry and exit strategies. And one of the things I'm well known for, you know, and that usually is a full, a full day of, of my time, okay? And, and there's a lot of uh, what I'm going to call timber stand improvement methods that I recommend, a lot of it being hinge cutting or a mixture of hinge cutting and notch and fall technology that I use. And so I uh, usually at the end of the day, get my equipment out, bring it right out to the uh, client's property, and we usually build a bedding area or a travel corridor or something that he's got that would work out that's not too far from the truck so we're not hauling equipment, you know, a half mile. But uh, <laughs> Right. Uh, and often what I do uh, with some of these people uh, is, uh, you know, I, I travel the entire spring. You know, I'm gone from my house from mid-January through about mid-June, and and this year it was 17 states and uh, 55 different clients and about 27,000 miles. And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, but it was just a blast being with all these people, seeing all these different sites. Uh, but when I eventually get back to my office and pull up the file for the property I'm working on, I go to the satellite uh, views and between the satellite photos and the topo maps, I develop a very detailed, highly detailed site layout plan with all of the screening and the food plots and the bedding areas and uh, stand locations and recommended use of stands, you know, what time of the year, uh, whether it be a morning stand, afternoon stand, and things like that. So a lot of time, a lot of energy goes into these highly detailed plans. But, you know, it's uh, on the other hand, it's really good pieces of information. Uh, these are normally like 10 to 20-year plans, and, and oftentimes I'll hear back from the clients after I send the package out and and they, they, they tell me how overwhelmed they are. My gosh, with all this information, all this data, how am I going to get my head around it? You know, and I, I kind of walk them through it. They, you do it a piece at a time. So, so that's what I have done for about the last, oh, 15 plus years. You know, uh, prior to that, I was a mechanical engineer that loved deer hunting, but I had to make a living, you know. And <laughs> right. I, 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 can, I can sympathize with that. You can sympathize with that, you know, and so I, I drove a really long distance from this area of southern Michigan to the Detroit area and worked in high-speed automation, uh, building cars, transmissions, you name it, you know, but uh, anyway, it was a great life, uh, but I wanted I wanted to change that and did go ahead and, and step out of that business and built uh, this uh, Habitat Solutions business, and then uh, through my association in this uh, industry, about five years ago, uh, I met some of the owners of Whitetail Properties Real Estate, and they actually asked me to come to some of their Illinois and uh, Missouri and Iowa properties and help them develop plans on these properties, uh, which I did and, and just, you know, really enjoyed, you know, the diversity and the different property, different type of hunting style and, uh, you know, low hunting pressure and got to know the guys real well. 
And, uh, you know, they, they of course, were not licensed and ready to go here in Michigan, but said, geez, we'd love to, you know, we're going to come to Michigan. We'd like to offer you the opportunity. So, you know, uh, they gave me their steel. I had my chance to uh, learn about them, see what type of company they are. So just recently in the last year, I've become a licensed uh, call land specialist. I'm, you know, I've got my uh, real estate license here in the state of Michigan, and I'm also uh, listing and selling hunting land, farmland, and timber uh, here in Michigan as well. So it's a really good mix, you know, because I run into Habitat clients that are either looking for more property or maybe they've got their property to where they'd like it to be and would like to list it and uh, see if they could make a few nickels, maybe, you know, go from 40 acres to, you know, 60 acres or go from 60 acres to 100 acres, but it's all working out real well. So in short, that's who I am. Nice. Yeah. The, uh, the whitetail properties, uh, piece was interesting. I know I heard that just a few, few months ago I, I, I had heard. And I also saw on, on Facebook, I know that you have, uh, you list a few things on there and talk about a few of the properties. Um, I, I did hear one of their, uh, I don't know if he was a founder or who, who he was that works for, uh, whitetail properties and what they do is, uh, really interesting. I know that I've been guilty of perusing their site and trying to convince my wife of maybe looking at land in Ohio, but we'll, we'll keep chopping on chopping the wood oh, there yeah. and see, <laughs> yeah. see if we, see if we can make, make that happen. I might have to hit you up for a, for a contact in, uh, in Ohio, but before oh, we, sure. we set a couple, before we jump into any of the specifics that we want to talk about today, because um, you, you mentioned a couple things there that piqued my interest and kind of set off my spidey senses. But before we do that, um, what uh, how was your uh, 2015 hunting season? How did you how did you fare this year? You know, it was a great season. It's actually one of the best I've had considering the weather conditions. You know, uh, pretty much everybody it, right? in the. Everybody in the Midwest knows that it was warmer at the wrong time of the year than it should have been. Yeah. Uh, the good thing is, uh, I mean, I have a small property here, uh, 67 acres. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the great thing is I, have, I constantly test different things. And for about the last two and a half years, I've been testing a new system in creating uh, isolated bedding cover strictly for bucks and putting a specific type of food in that bedding cover. And last year was the first year that I really had a chance to do it in three different locations and then have other locations that were almost identical that I didn't use that technique and ran cameras and could see the pluses and the minuses. And so the pluses were I was able to hold a very good number of mature bucks on the property through the season. And ultimately I did end up killing one of my target bucks, uh, you know, he dressed out well over 200 pounds in uh, mid-November, so that's not a bad deer. Yeah. And he was a 10-point, uh, probably, you know, uh, upper 120s. But at the time, he, he was not the particular deer that I thought he was. And so, I'll, you know, I'll tell anybody, hey, if I do something wrong, I made a mistake. Um, I, I had a buck that I called the other 10. I had the big 10 and the other 10. And mm-hmm. it was during muzzleloader season, and you just get a short window. You know, you see him cutting through the pine. And, uh, yeah, that's him. And so, anyways, I... Uh, the, uh, the sights, you know, the crosshair found his shoulder, touched it off, made a great chat, and walk up to him, and he's not the deer I thought he was. But he still was a good one. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> wish I, I wish I made those kind of mistakes. <laughs> uh, I'll make that mistake no every really single year if possible. And, uh, pardon? I said, I'll make that mistake every single year if possible. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. That's why I've had other people say, geez, you know, you know, those are terrible problems to have. 
Right. But, but I mean, what's really impressive is that, you know, you mentioned you have 67 acres there and I know, you know, that you are managing to hold some really good mature deer in a state that obviously has a long hunting heritage, but which also equals significant hunting pressure, right? Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. High, so, high, high hunting pressure. So the one thing you mentioned there was the isolated bedding cover with food. You were doing kind of a, a little, an A-B test there, if you will. Yeah. Can you, I guess, talk a little bit about what you were trying to kind of uh, assess there, what you were trying to, to get at well, to see, what, what was yeah. your goal, I guess, with that test? You know, and, and I'll tell you, this goes into, you know, this subject that we're talking about, you know, and I'm sure you, you've talked to other people too. I could go on for days about this subject. But you know, we could listen for deer. Deer, the biology of a deer, and, and the biology of a buck. Okay, I'm trying. I'm always trying to figure out why does a buck do what it does, and can I influence some of these things that a buck does? And one thing all of us know is that regardless of how good the cover is, the bedding is, a buck gets up every three, two and a half, three hours, moves around a little bit, feeds, eats, lays back down, as long as the bedding area is right. Now this is prior to a buck chasing, searching, seeking does. Okay, once that starts, hey, all bets are off, man. I mean, we, we can't control them once their hormones are telling them what to do. But prior right. to that, you know, uh, so early on in my life, I did not believe that having food in a bedding cover made any sense. I was, I, I, uh, I'll have to admit, you know, I, I was uh, blockheaded about it and thought, well, you should have excellent bedding and then you should have excellent food. And then you can just have this perfect system of deer going from bedding to food. But the more I learn about bucks and how secluded they like to be and how solitary creatures they become and how they like isolated little islands of cover that they don't have to move around much with and they don't want to go deal with the, the you know, the competitive eight point or nine point or 10 point that's 400 yards away bedded somewhere else. Uh, I started thinking that, you know, if I could give that deer everything he needed, so he could get up every three hours or so and feed and then rub a little bit and lay right back down. That Maybe I could keep him here longer so that right when that seeking phase takes place, he's not running over to the neighbors and getting in trouble and dying. <laughs> right. <laughs> that, that really was the strategy, okay? That's a, that's a, that's a bad day in anybody's life, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, the truth is uh, I think it's working very, very well. Okay, uh, now that I'm I'm at uh, year three into it, and I've really been using it, I've shared it with several clients this year, and I've gotten incredible feedback from clients that only have one year's worth of use, but they're having the same luck that, that I had in year three and year one. So, uh, so you know, the, the, it's uh, it's hard to explain it unless you see it, but the reality is, uh, it's it's a combination of hinge cutting. And I use that term isolated bedding. You know, and I know you, you were like, what does that mean, right? Right. And, and, you know, when it comes to doe family groups, you know, be that three or four adult does and they're one or two fawns, it could be a group of five, seven, eight, nine uh, antlerless deer, and they're all related, so they all like to bed together. So those are larger, I call them community bedding areas. And you, you use a combination of the hinge cutting and notch and fall, the open canopy, create early successional growth, and provide all the cover and the browse for these doe family groups. And they like to be able to see each other and groom each other in the, in the summer and, and fall and everything's good. But, and so do the bucks during the summer, you know, they're all pals and they kiss each other and lick each other's face and, 
and you know uh, all you know if you run any cameras or watch them you know they're all pals but now that they've gone hard antler everything's changing really fast for these older mature bucks so they so they seek isolated areas where they don't have to deal with each other anymore and so i spend a lot of time creating isolated areas that are just large enough for one or two deer to utilize but would you know Extremely good cover leading to and from those locations. So uh, so I go inside. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, so when you're talking about the isolated bedding, just to kind of follow up on, on that nugget, are you looking for any type of specific terrain features that you're looking to make this bedding in, or how are you kind of designating where you want to make that isolated bedding? You know, Clint, I'm glad you brought that up because topography can have so much to do with it. If you're in the real flat ground, it really doesn't matter because everywhere is flat, okay? And, right. and where I'm at, it's, I'm going to call gently rolling. We're going to have 35, 40-foot terrain changes in a 100-yard area, okay? Uh, some of it's kind of steep, but not really. Nothing compared to what you see in southern Ohio and West Virginia and Missouri and Iowa and that sort of thing. Right. But if you do happen to have property in an area where you've got higher elevations and lower elevations, Typically, the higher elevations are going to be good locations for deer of all, of all sexes to be able to, to utilize the thermos for ascending conditions, okay? You know, be that coyotes, man, any kind of predator. They like to get up on hills and be able to smell, you know, what's on the other side of the hill or coming up through the valley or, or, or whatever. And so, you know, it's... Uh, it, when I walk onto a property, I can, I can, you know, do a 360 degree turn and look at 20 acres and pretty much pinpoint right off the bat where, where the bucks currently are bedding and where other deer are bedding, but not everybody can. Okay. You know, it's a combination of looking at edges and uh, shelves, you know, you know what a shelf is, you know, you might have a, uh, a train drop of uh, 40 feet and it's a, it's a fairly gentle, uh, ridge edge. But it's halfway down, it kind of flattens out for 20 yards, and then it drops down again. And those shelves are ideal bedding locations. They, they are just made for bedding deer. And uh, so, you know, I, I just wanted to make sure that people understood that topography can have a lot to do with it. But if you don't have the topography, it's not, then you really get into, uh, it's sort of a, uh, uh, not then you're designing uh, the best bass fishing lake you ever had, and you look at it being structured, you know, drop-off island and your man-made structure. So right. I, I utilize that kind of philosophy a lot of times on properties that don't have a lot of topography change. But the more extreme the topography change, the more difficult it gets to do these things that I've talked about. And uh, I probably have the most ideal situation because I have some flat ground, I have some slight rolls with a couple of valleys here and there. And so I focus, um, I use the philosophy, I try to build a Hilton hotel with uh, vacancies for a thousand, a thousand rooms of every choice, high ground, low ground, middle ground, uh, down next to swamps, up high on tops of ridges, uh, for a hundred uh, guests that are going to use it. And I let them decide which ones they're going to use. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I build a really fancy hotel with all the amenities 
and then I let them use them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good philosophy there. It's a, just a, you cast a, a very a very wide net. I have one more follow up question on the on the isolated betting piece, and then I, I definitely want to dive into some stuff that's related to assessing land, especially when it comes to high pressured areas, um, you know, or high pressured states, and, and especially small tracts of land. But whenever you're building these isolated bedding areas, because I've watched some of your videos and I've heard you talk about some of this stuff before um, and, you know, and, and loved hearing the information. But I know that, you know, in, in a traditional sense, and correct me if I'm speaking out of turn here, but, you know, you put food in one area and a bedding in another area and you try to create some travel corridor doors to direct where the deer traffic is going to be so you can kind of set your ambush, for lack of a better way to put it. And you kind of understand, you know, when you build that, you, you kind of set that up with stand locations in mind, depending on what the wind might be doing in those particular areas or what your prevailing wind during that the time of year you're going to be hunting. But whenever you're setting up these isolated bedding areas, how are you planning to hunt these if you're going to hunt those? You know, and obviously I'm, I'm assuming you're waiting for the prime time to do so because you're, you're, it seems like you're going to have to get pretty close to where that, that buck is calling you know, what we'll call his comfort zone, where he's not going to yeah. really uh, right. accept a whole lot of intrusion. So what are your stand setups in those locations if you are hunting them and how do you hunt that? You know, my, um, I will say this, uh, you have to, uh, and, and maybe this will make more sense, but in just prior to those coming into heat, there's a real noticeable, what you call separation of the sex. If you watch a food plot, you're going to see does and fawns and button bucks in a few year and a half group together, and then if you do see a mature buck, he's all by himself. So I set everything up just for that time period, and these bucks okay. like to be all by themselves. Now, when I hunt those bucks, I don't go in and hunt those individual bedding areas very often. I mean, there, there are strategies I do have to hunt them, but generally I try to get fairly close. Like I have gotten within, say, 60 yards of an isolated buck bedding area, and I just happened to be in a transition travel corridor that he would move out of and kind of come in to circle downwind of a, of a doe bedding area, an existing known doe bedding area. And that's where I try to pick him off at, <laughs> to use a better term, I guess. Right. Okay, that's interesting because as you're talking, it's like I'm visualizing uh, our farm here in, in Pennsylvania, which is you know it's a it's, it's it's a fair tract of land. It's about 240 acres, and there's a, a ridge. There's two buck bedding areas that are well. There's three buck bedding areas that are huntable. I'll say one is in this really thick cover off this uh, off this cliff edge, which you can really only hunt one side of it. And you really kind of have to wait for the, him to funnel out into the saddle, into this field is really the only place yeah. that anything coming from that bedding area is going to give you an opportunity. Right. But there's one on, we have a mountain on one side and I found a really nice classic buck bedding area with a big down tree, a large canopy over top of it. There's an oak flat that's not too far away. So he has, you know, uh, hard mass there during, you know, roughly this time of year where he doesn't have to leave yeah. far to get food. Um, right. And everything you're kind of describing is it makes me feel good. Is I set my hunts up in my stand locations exactly kind of how you <laughs> how you just mentioned, which yeah. I got roughly within 60 yards where I know he's going to have to travel because there's an edge of a thicket that was clear cut. You know, I want to say maybe eight nine years ago, so it's come back pretty thick now um, and makes a really hard edge along our property line, and that's where I get a lot of. Uh, game camera pictures and I've had a lot of nice buck sightings in that area. Oh, so, uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that I was doing something right. We'll put that in the right uh, column for right know, now. Yeah. Yeah. You are, you're, you're doing, you're doing it right. And, uh, you know, when I do these, uh, habitat plans and property assessments, you know, 
Um, it's a very, I guess I'll use the term, it's a holistic approach I take because I often have to spend two to four hours convincing these clients they're going to have to hunt differently than they have currently hunted. And right. and why does a deer do what it does, you know? And uh, um, I will hunt a buck's core bedding area in under the right conditions. But in order to do that, you have to know an awful lot about that deer, have some experience with it, know that it's bedding in a particular area, know an awful lot about the weather conditions, and then there's only about a 10-day time period out of the year you can do that, beat that deer to that bed before daylight, and wait for him to come in. And the biggest mistakes I see clients do is they, they set the property up correctly. They do a lot of things that I recommend, and they go in the first week of October, way before pre-rut, and go in there, and what do you think they do? They bust that buck out of that bed, walking in when it's dark. Yeah, and so, and you know, yeah, you know, I kind of getting pictures of him now. I'm only getting nighttime pictures, and and it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. At that, that point, you just you, did, you know. And right, yeah, you just educated him. Yeah, you've just educated him really, really well. And two things happen, you know. Uh, often he doesn't leave that bed, but he changes who he is. Mm-hmm. You know, he he moves around a lot different, or he relocates. That doesn't mean he's going to go all that far. He might only relocate 40, 60, 80 yards away, but he'll relocate. And it all depends how much pressure you put on him. And, uh, you know, I, uh, one of the best buck kills I ever had, I, uh, you know, weather was right, cameras told me everything, uh, slipped in as close as I possibly could, got into the stand, and within 20 minutes had him laying 40 yards from my stand. You know, (laughs) and that deer come right out of the bedding area exactly like it was supposed to. We follow the script 100. percent You know, it doesn't always work that way. But it's a beautiful thing when it does, though, right? It always (laughs) is when it happens. Yeah, it's a really, really good thing. So you mentioned one thing, and this is actually one of the things I wanted to get to. It was kind of later in, in, in the conversation, but you, you kind of teed it up, so I wanted to kind of take advantage of the of the uh, opportunity, opportunity to discuss it. You mentioned, you know, when you're setting these properties up for clients and talking about, you know, buck locations, and, and if you're going to go in to hunt a buck bed, you have to do it at the right time because there's only a, a window of opportunity you're going to have that might be roughly 10 days. And your goal really is to beat that buck back to bed you'd mentioned. So when you're doing that, one of the, I, I toyed around with this a little bit last year and I'm still kind of on the fence personally, but do you use the moon and the, 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 the moon overhead or underfoot to kind of determine when you're going to take those opportunities or what might give you a better chance to beat that buck back to bed? Well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, the moon position, if you spend and it takes a several years of tracking to see what's going on. I'm a big believer that moon position can, and I use that word can, can have some incredible influence in deer movement. But there's a lot, you know, there's so many different factors that, that make that perfect hunt like I just got done explaining to you, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's say you've got the ideal set property and you've done everything right, okay? Your scent control is ideal. You're, you're, you're watching the weather. You've got a cold front. It's it's that right 10 days out of the year. You've never hunted that stand. You go in. It's perfect. You're there for six hours, and you don't see a shooter. And you you scratch your head, and you go, what in the world did I do wrong? Well, you may not have done anything wrong. There could have been two coyotes that ran through there 20 minutes before daylight and moved those deer out of there. Right. And and so there's all these factors that we we have no control over, okay? And and, uh, so, so that's that's... That's what I'm, I always kind of preclude that. 
But given the right factors, uh, I'm a big believer in the position of the moon. I'm not really a moon phase guy at all. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've got a couple of really good friends in the deer industry that have written books and they do videos as well too. And they follow the moon and, uh, you know, I, at the moon position, so moon directly overhead, that would be what you call moon major. Okay. And uh, what, what I will say is, you know, deer are precuspular. That means they move those first two hours of daylight and that last hour and a half of daylight, right? That, that's their normal movement period. So even under a bad moon, usually the first hour of daylight and the last hour of daylight, you're going to have some deer move. But take, uh, take 11.30 a.m. to 3 o'clock p.m., which is really the dead time of the day, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say it's November 4th and you've got a cold front, it's uh, 22 degrees colder on November 4th than it was November 3rd, the wind's out of the northwest, it's a high-pressure system, and moon major is going to be at 1.35 p.m. I will be in my best stand during that day. Hmm. And, and I really get excited from about noon on. Because usually from an hour to 45 minutes before that moon major and for half an hour to 45 minutes after that moon major, you will see deer movement when there hasn't been anything else happening since that first hour of morning, you know, hour and a half, two hours of morning movement. So there are times that it can create incredible deer movement during the, during the non-normal deer movement time period. But, you know, on the other hand, I'm going to say, if the moon is not in the right position, but it's the right time of the year and it's a cold front, it's a high pressure system, and you got daylight pictures of mature bucks, yeah, I'm hunting my best stands too, okay? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? What, uh, so when it comes to barometer, because you just mentioned high pressure, um, how closely, I'm assuming you're following the, the barometric pressure pretty closely during, during hunting season, and you, and you know, you I hunt. Mean, I'll tell you what. Uh, when I was younger uh, and wasn't quite into the scent control and didn't, I hadn't built the property up quite like it was, I spent a lot of time watching the, the barometer. And out of all, you know, for years I was like, oh, man, falling barometer, falling barometer. That, that's the movement. And, yeah, sometimes there is some really great movement. It seems to be a short window of movement. Um, I, like, I like the day after a cold front when it's starting to stabilize and come back up. Hmm. That, that is my favorite hunt. Um, you know, I mean, if I look at the uh, 30-some bucks I've got on the wall and the dozen best bucks I ever killed were at a morning, uh, day after cold front, uh, it's starting to stabilize, and we're getting into what we call a high-pressure system. Uh, I actually learned that technique from Mark and Terry Drury. You know, I was those, just going to uh, say, that sounded that yeah. sound very, that sound yeah, very you know, Drury-like. They, you know, they cut videos, you know, 25, 30 years ago, and that's when I first started dialing in on that kind of information and uh paying attention, uh, but, I, but I'm a, a big cold front guy, and, and hey, you can have incredible hunts during fair weather, too, though. I, I, I can tell you that, okay, but right. uh, still, I've, uh, nothing gets me more excited, you know, knowing that there, we've had uh, maybe 45 to 55 degree temperatures, and uh, let's say you're a weekend hunter, so Friday night, the temperature is going to drop down to 28 degrees, and Saturday, the high is going to be... Uh, 31 to 34 degrees and it's going to be, you know, gusty Northwest winds, man, that, that's a hunt all day in my best stand day. If that happens to be within the first two weeks of November. Right. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, I agree there. That's uh, I know just in watching our, 
our fields, you can always kind of see, you know, I've kind of, it's followed suit with what you kind of mentioned. It's like, I definitely would see more movement if there was before, right before the weather hit, it seems like everyone thinks coming out the feed to kind of hunker down, if you will, to kind of prepare. And then the the day of the, the, the weather that is, is bad or the cold front kind of moves in. It definitely was always a little bit slower than just like you're kind of saying. It's like it's uh, almost like they were uh, the prisoners were released <laughs> yeah. as soon as the, uh, yeah. the the weather the system kind of moved through and the weather was still you know you were still getting that temperature drop maybe um, kind of yeah. related to what just passed through. Yeah. But the conditions were a little bit more conducive for them to get up and and then to get up to move. And I definitely agree. It's like I prefer a little bit of a of a blustery day. Um, it helps me kind of pattern where my my sense going to go <laughs> to right. to a degree that way I'm not kind of uh you know playing with uh playing with knives so to speak whenever it comes to trying to figure out where my scent cone is going to be but just to shift gears here I wanted to dive into um you know another area of your of your expertise which you know for a lot of our listeners who 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 follow the podcast and follow the blog are from typically high pressure hunting state. So places like Pennsylvania and Michigan, Phil and I both live here in Pennsylvania. And, uh, and many times, you know, it used to be, at least when I was growing up there, you know, there was a lot more folks who had larger tracts of land and larger farms. And it seems like as I've gotten a little older, a lot of those farms have been sold off and broken up. There were multiple houses now are on those pieces of property and we don't have quite the large tracts of land that we once had. Um, so I wanted to kind of use maybe even your property as as an example, and I wanted to talk a little bit about your approach to creating great hunting habitat when it comes to a small property, um, and how to kind of set it up specifically when you're talking about hunting in a high pressure state, and want to kind of take it from the moment that you purchased your property because I know this has been something that you've worked on. It wasn't you know a turnkey. Uh, operation or something you've been working on for a lot of years and put a lot of work into getting it to where to where it's at so my first question is is really i wanted to kind of just pick your brain and discuss how you assess land versus the neighborhood right so it's like especially like whether you're looking to sell or when you're looking to buy or whether you're just assessing the land that you currently own and how you might want to manipulate it how much does your neighborhood play into that and what are some of the, I guess, the first things you would kind of tell folks to look for in terms of monitoring or assessing their neighborhood and the quality they, and what they might need to implement on their property to, to get decent hunting? Yeah, that's, you know, that's, uh, I'll try and be as, uh, not real broad with that statement, trying to be kind of specific, but, you know, I mean, neighborhoods clearly have a lot to do and, and, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm learning an awful lot now that I'm on the real estate sales side of things, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. Location, location, location. You know, it's funny. The sellers were like, Oh, that guy over there, you know, you know. <laughs> so, right. so they, they can't wait to tell you right away who, who the good neighbor and the bad neighbor is. But a lot of my habitat clients over the last 15 years have also say, Hey, you know, this neighbor over here, this is my problem neighbor. He's the one that, you know, he hunts on the fence row, um, but I mean, you know, if, if you have, uh, if, if you have a neighbor and he's got uh, 35 coon dog houses all along your fence line mm-hmm. <laughs> and 35 coon hounds and, and his buddies come out on their motorcycles every Saturday night and shoot their handguns, uh, right. you probably don't really uh, stand a good chance of having a great deer property. It doesn't sound like they're practicing QDM. <laughs> and the reason I tell that story, and that is an honest to gosh a situation I uh, walked into uh, about five years ago. And, wow. you know, a guy hires me to come out and do a plan, and then I start seeing what his neighbors are like. And so at the end of the day, I'm telling him he needs to put his place up for sale and start somewhere else. And 
and and that was just I mean he had three neighbors and they were all they all had that type of situation going on. It was it was I felt so bad for the guy. You know? Right. I mean yeah because he basically didn't pay a whole lot of attention. You know he he got the uh, you know the uh, probably when he bought the property was oh wow man I'm getting forty acres you know he's all excited and and then later right. he found out all these situations and, and maybe some of those situations develop but uh, right but but you know I, I guess. Barring that happening, you know, if you say you've got the normal uh, uh, mix of agriculture and woods and swamp and, and uh, uh, you know, typical Midwest uh, topography and ground, um, you know, um, you can. it's amazing what you can do with a property. You know, if, if you can, number one, isolate bedding, okay, and that is create good bedding and create good food sources, and then you have to focus on uh, what I call screening of access, okay? Uh, where am I parking at? How am I accessing hunting stands? How am I getting how am I getting past the food? How am I walking past bedding areas? So my philosophy is multiple bedding locations, multiple feeding locations. Uh, if the property is 40 or more acres, then I, then I often recommend at least two what I call destination food plots, and those are going to be two acres or larger, and, and that is ultimately where the deer end up at in that last uh, half an hour to 45 minutes of daylight, but mm-hmm. the chain of movement, the, the deer movement pattern is created by a number of small, what I call micro food plots that start right up pretty close to the bedding area and wind through a travel corridor system, and eventually, you know, you, you, you take deer from bedding to feeding, to maybe another location of bedding, or just an area of what I'll call security cover. And it may be a flatter area, and I'll call it, I'll often refer to these as socialization areas, and I'll put uh, numerous places and techniques in there for mock scrapes and mock rubs, so you can have rubbing and scraping, and then you can start getting competition amongst the bucks to start happening on that property in locations where that happens. And uh, compartmentalization, you know, that's, it might be hard to envision it, but if you can reduce the ability for deer to see a distance and for the hunter to see a dis- any distance, and I mean like, you know, 40 yards and less. Uh, yeah, I've got some large food plots, so there's a couple of places you can see 100 yards on my property. But if you, you get into any other cover, you struggle to see more than 20 to 40 yards in just about any place on the 67 acres. And many places you can't see five yards. Wow. And the, yeah, so, they, so the idea is to create a lot of edge, a lot of compartmentalization. Uh, and, and if I was to guess, I would say at this point, 55, probably 55 to 60% of the dry ground of existing hardwoods has been created, has been turned into some type of cover or bedding. Wow. Now, I do have areas of open woods that I purposely leave open so I can have places to walk through so I'm not walking where deer are bedding, okay? Right, uh, right. And, yeah. and then there's a transition of hinge cutting. You know, there's high high cutting, medium cutting, and very low cutting so that you create a screen so that maybe sometimes you're going to walk fairly close to an area where deer are bedded. But if they're com- if they're comfortable, uh, I don't know if you ever did any pheasant hunting in in your part of uh, yeah, absolutely. Gr- growing up, yeah. I used to pheasant hunt okay. quite a bit with my dad. So, 
you know, anybody who's pheasant hunted has been in a uh, 20 to 30 acre field with a mixture of grasses and shrubs and some uh, some raspberries, and you've got some birds up, and you've shot, and you've talked to the dog, and you talked to your buddy, and you put the rooster in the back of your coat, and you took three steps, and up jumps deer. Right. You know, and then <laughs> that deer felt very comfortable, so comfortable it was willing to take the risk and not move, Okay. And so I, I apply that philosophy to a lot of properties. I try to create enough good cover so that the areas that I recommend the landowners to actually move around and travel from one hunting location to another or, say, where they park their truck or where their cabin is, um, that, that uh, once they establish the cover, as I recommend, they can get by these areas and there will be deer in them. But they feel secure enough, and as long as you don't stand there, you know, and like like the hunting situation to where they can't take it any longer, and they finally freak out. As long as you slowly move through there, those deer will sit right tight and let you walk right by them. Then you walk maybe another 100, 125 yards, you get into your stand, they forget all about you. Uh, an hour later, a mature buck comes through there, checks those does out, they get up, they start moving towards the food plot, he's tailing in behind them, and he walks right past your stand. Make it sound so easy. And if you'd have, and if they'd have, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Phil. And if you'd have blown those deer out of there walking in, that wouldn't have been the kind of hunt you'd have, you know, because that buck right. would have come in there, and the first thing he'd have done is is uh, smelt the fact those deer were were uh, bounced out of there because you know the deer do leave a different odor with their yeah. uh, their pre digital gland there when they're uh, alarmed versus just getting up and walking. And, uh, yeah, that's like the they, that's the death nail. Whenever you have one standing there looking at you pounding the ground, that drives me yeah. crazy. Yeah, everybody's seen that, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, that's the slight that, that, that you know, don't want to see. Stopping their feet and blowing, you know, there's not nobody wants that on the first hunt going in, do they? <laughs> no, it's certainly not. <laughs> but you mentioned something there with screening, which I think a lot of times, at least in my opinion, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's something that I think oftentimes is overlooked when people are putting together their habitat plan or starting to in- enhance their habitat. And what I wanted to ask was, you know, is screening the first thing you should consider when you buy, when you either you buy or you have a property that's in a state that has a uh, high hunting pressure. Uh, and if not, what type of enhancements were, would be the first things you would suggest making in that type of scenario? Um, I'll tell you why, you know, I, I'll, I've been asked this question by a number of people and all properties are a little bit different, but I think, uh, the most important thing to establish right off the bat is good bedding. You know, and a lot of people uh, often go to food first. And, and I was one of those that, uh, that, that played with that. You know, I was doing food and bedding kind of about the same time, but I was concentrating more on food. Um, but if you can establish the bedding, and, you know, uh, I, I often tell people, um, these deer are going to tell you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. Even on this small property of mine, I, I have a, uh, it's got 25 acres of flooded timber. It's wood duck heaven. It's nothing but maples and bur oaks and three feet of water. And so it's just full of wood ducks and mallards in there and there's little islands. And, and imagine a, a, a and it has, a, has the most irregular shape you ever saw. It's got fingers and points and places that are cl- that, that neck together that deer cross the water. And then there's also large areas, 100, 150 yards, uh, you know, full of buckbrush and three feet of water. So the deer, of course, don't travel through there. And uh, you'll find that there's certain, there are places I can go do a successful deer bedding area in one location 
and then go do that somewhere else and, you know, yeah, they'll use it, but nothing like the other one. So that's why I say try try to establish the uh, the betting areas first because you may, say you, uh, in, in a two-year time period, you try to create six of them. Well, four of them are really working well and the other two aren't. So if you'd have spent time and energy creating the screening leading to and from there first, you kind of now you're backtracking. So right. I, I believe okay. in getting the bedding established off the bat, and then then putting the food where you can, and, and and you know food and trying to grow food based on topography and soil conditions is a re, you know it's a real chore. It's never where you want it. Okay, even here <laughs> I'm growing food not where I want it. Yeah. You know. Right. So yep. speaking of speaking of food, what types, especially for small tracts of land, what type of, of food plots do you do you recommend or do you consider for those types of uh, properties? Well, you know, uh, for small properties, and, and of course for the for the best bang for your buck, you know, cool season annuals are are uh, you know they're easy to grow. Uh, they're at the right time of the year. You don't have near the weed competition you do is when you try to establish, say, perennials and things like that. And, you know, they're there to benefit the deer right at the beginning all the way through the late part of the season. Uh, but ideally, you know, uh, brassicas, turnips, uh, groundhog radishes. Uh, I don't know if you've used crimson clover much before, which is an annual clover. I've not used crimson. I've used some uh, some white clover is what I think yeah. I, I've used for uh, my, my perennial plot. I've looked into yeah. doing... Some uh, annual clover kind of mixed in with uh, with the I'm not quite sure what yet, um, but I've kind of I've read up on a few things where they said adding that into um, you know maybe a brassica mixture might be might be beneficial. Yeah, it can be. Uh, it could be in the right location. It could be just dynamite. Uh, one of the reasons I like it, Clint and Phil, is crimson clover peaks in its natural sugar production just about the first week of November. How fortuitous. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you know, when, when it comes to a rut food source, uh, you, you know, uh, two years ago, I actually took some video. I think it was two, maybe three. It might have been three falls back. But I had a video camera with me for probably close to 10 years now. And so I take a lot of video footage, and I also have some SLRs with me. I take a lot of So I get just as much fun with getting deer with camera than I do uh uh, letting the air out of their lungs, you know. <laughs> right. uh, but the coolest thing that happened was it was the it was the opening morning of our gun season here, and, and the, you know you 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 ask about pressure, and when you when you listen to five minutes of this video, you probably can count fifty plus shots guns wow. going. So that just gives you an idea of what the local area is like on the opening morning with guns. You know, every forty acre plot has got three to six guys in orange coats. Okay. Right. Yeah, the Orange Army's out in force. Yeah, Jake, I actually have I have a lot of familiarity with with exactly what you're saying with the opening season for rifle. Um, you know, so there are some some times where over the first half hour to 45 minutes, I'm up upwards of uh, 150 200 shots that I hear, um, and you know, sometimes sometimes one of them is me. But uh, yeah, it's it's almost <laughs> like the. Yeah, it's, it's almost like the 4th of July, just, you know, without the fireworks. <laughs> you know, and, and quite honestly, you know, I, I'm torn because I, I love the hunting heritage and I love the tradition. Um, you know, I, I'm just happy to see that people are today understanding uh, the, the, the QDMA philosophy, the older age class bucks, better hunting, just having a, a better experience. 
But the story I'm getting to, which is going into Crimson Clover. So it's opening day. It's probably an uh, hour and a half, two hours into the sit. And I've got a number of bucks around me. Uh, nothing that I'd consider a shooter, but I've got some nice 115-inch eight-pointers, some two-year-olds, and a doe just comes screaming in 90 miles an hour and stops right in front. And behind her, you can just hear the brush cracking and the grunting. And eight different bucks are behind this doe. <laughs> She's a great and, popular and it, lady. And, it's totally, you know, and you know the kind of pandemonium that takes place. Okay. Right. You, you, I mean, everything is going crazy. And, and the top dog, he is, uh, he's actually the second buck to arrive. He's a really nice eight point. Got a couple of times broke. I don't know if he'd, he'd done it then, but you know, he broke a couple of times off. So that made me right away decide, okay, I'm not shooting him, even though he was probably close to 20 inches wide and he wasn't 10 yards away from Jeez. And, uh, she dives into a hinge cut and literally crawls right underneath. 24-inch limbs and piles into this hinge cut 30 yards away. And all these bucks tower all in front of you, you know, and there's year and a half and two and a half and uh, probably two, three and a half. So I figured this buck must have been about a four and a half year old. And he snort wheezes and just does the entire thing. And I got it on video, takes his rack, walks up to a tree, breaks the limb off, got his hair standing out on end, got his ears back. He's walking sideways, you know, that, that cool posture they have. He's got it all going on, you know. And he's just like, I am bad, you know, and they're all giving him his face. He walks about 15 yards into this tiny little micro food plot right on the edge where this hinge cut was. That's why I was set up there. And as much as he's into, you know, posturing and letting all the other bucks know that he's top dog and he's really interested in that doe, and he, he walks up and he, and he checks out that she's under that big treetop, and then he stops and feeds in that crimson clover for about 10 minutes. <laughs> and I got it all on film. Like, he's like, oh, you know, she's not going anywhere. I'm going to grab something to eat. Can't do, and, it, can't know, do anything on an empty the, stomach. So that's, that's, the, <laughs> so that's the, uh, the benefit of crimson clover at the right place and at the right time. And, uh, you know, you'll hear some people say, oh, these rotten bucks, that never, they never take time to eat. Well, I beg to differ. You know, I think they will take time to eat. Right, I think you have some video footage that that might prove otherwise, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. one thing I wanted to ask you, because I, I know a lot of times when folks are talking about, uh, you know, improving their land with you know habitat enhancements and you know food plot and and so forth, one thing that I, that I think sometimes gets let out is you know talking about how the wind plays a factor in 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 your consideration for habitat improvements. So can you talk about how? You know, when you determining a prevailing wind for your hunting season and, and what type of considerations you make for making habitat modifications and improvements based on that known prevailing wind? Yeah, you know, and uh, I'll probably, um, I'll mention a few things and you'll probably scratch your head and say, man, that guy's nuts. Um, <laughs> over, the, over the years, I have uh, spent a lot of time watching the wind, learning from the wind. Um, you know, I, I take the... Uh, you know the the uh, the milk plant, you know milkweed, and they yeah, got those yeah. real fluffy seeds. You know, and I use those as my wind indicator uh, over, say, the puff bottles because you know that that little floater might go might go behind my stand for fifteen twenty yards, go up twenty feet, turn around, and next and five minutes later it's out in front of me forty yards. You know, and right. you get a real feeling for these air currents. Are number one, they're just not predictable. 
Right. Uh, and if you if you look at a true, uh, I think they call it a, a a wind a wind rose. Yeah. If you look at a wind rose, you'll find that the prevailing wind is uh, definitely less than fifty percent. So it's coming from somewhere else fifty to sixty percent of the time. But the major- but if you took the one area that it's coming from most often, then that's what they call the prevailing wind. Uh, so I will set up doe bedding areas. Uh, let's say we'll use a southwest wind, which we have a lot of here. If you were to say I have one prevailing wind, which is a, uh, a you call a fair weather wind, it's a, it's a south southwest wind. So I'm, I'll have a, a particular area, maybe a five acre area, and it's fairly flat with a few twenty foot rolls on it. And I'll put two large deer uh, doe bedding uh, family community uh, hinge cuts in there. They're going to be 100, 150 yards long. They're going to be 75 yards wide separated by about 50 yards of hardwood that I don't do any cutting. Then I do another one, almost identical, parallel to it. And then about 20 yards south of the second one, I create uh, I create a, a very good travel corridor. I open up the canopy. I get a lot of early successional growth. I've got trees, hinge cut, uh, laying uh, parallel, but never hinge cut to create a fence. You know, some people think, oh, I'll just build this corridor and I'll, and I'll box these deer in. Well, at least in high-pressured states, I found that these bucks don't like to use a travel corridor that they can't go right or left from in any immediate uh, area, you know. Uh, but what I'm getting at is I find that these mature bucks like to travel downwind of a known doe bedding area. So then I will create a barrier on the opposite side of that corridor that might be 10 to 15 yards uh, wide with some hinge cutting next to a great big giant oak that I put a tree stand in up 22 feet. And I hunt out of that tree stand directly downwind of that known doe bedding area in that type of a wind, say southwest wind, because I know that these mature bucks are going to be downwind of those doe areas, cruising, looking for does, trying to use their nose. They're trying to be as efficient as they can. And uh, most of the time, these bucks like to move with their nose angling into the wind, but um, often I see them do a technique called tailwinding. And I don't know if you guys have run into that before. No, I mean, I've I've heard of it before. I don't know. Is that where you're I – mean, I mean, I've heard folks talk about hunting hunting a wind – that is almost wrong for you and almost or almost wrong for the deer and almost right for you. Is that, is that similar? Yeah. Yeah. Where actually the wind, the wind would be say to this deer's back, instead of that deer trying to angle with its nose into the wind, you know, or, or angling into the wind. Cause they never go perfectly straight into it, you know, for, Hey, they got, they got places to travel, but, right. uh, but sometimes they'll do, uh, you know, that most of the time they want to, get out of their bedding area or their security area and move nose into the wind of, of some level. But uh, I have seen them do the opposite, and that is tailwinding, and that's that's when they're in a very secure area they feel very comfortable with, and they never run into people there, you know. Uh, so Right. I was going to say they would have to be pretty confident, I would think, yeah, to, yeah. to use that technique. They do. And, and just to answer the question about wind direction um, – one of the reasons I'm such a scent control nut is uh, I don't think, uh, you, you know, the wind is, if I spend four hours hunting, I don't care what, unless it's a 30, you know, 15 to 30 mile an hour blistery day, that's the only day I really know which 
way my scent is dispersing to. In a, mm-hmm. in a lighter wind, I think during that four-hour hunt, uh, that deer can smell me 360 degrees around me. So, uh, so that's my philosophy on um, having really good scent control is I just do everything I can to reduce it. I, I certainly can't get rid of all of it. Um, my goal is to have that deer that is 25 yards away think I'm about 125 yards away. Right. Yep. And, 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 I, and I, I've gotten that. I've, I've been able to pull that off a number of times. And, uh, but it's an awful lot of work, you know, c- compared to people that have never done it before. To me, it's just part of my routine. But, right. So, uh, what, what is your what is your scent control routine? You mentioned that you were pretty. Uh, um, pretty on top of it. So what, what kind of things do you go through? What's, what's, well, the, what's the Jake's, um, scent control um, regimen? Besides the normal shower before every hunt. Okay. And, uh, you know, brush your teeth and I actually gargle with peroxide and all these things to kill by bacteria. Um, but the most interesting thing I do that some people don't think about, but the towel that I dry off with mm-hmm. is a scent controlled towel. Uh, yeah. washed and laundered in a separate scent control uh, system that I have set up. It does not go in the family washing machine. It doesn't have the uh, the odor of my wife's la- laundry soap or her scent uh, thing that she puts in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I'm drying, you know, I think some guys, you know, they buy the, the, the scent-free soap and then they dry themselves off with their wife's towel. Yeah, yeah. I, know. I always take I always take a clean towel that I've washed with all my other hunting yep. clothes and, and scent so, control, and, and I've actually even taken to washing them. Um, I don't have a separate washing machine, so I've actually taken to washing them in in a bucket. And then yeah, I just put water yep, and detergent bucket. in it, and yeah. yeah, and I'll and I'll wash yep. it in a bucket, and I, and I don't put anything in my dryer, even if it does say that it's uh, able to be, uh, you know, machine dried. I always hang everything. Yeah, all good. So so you're getting there. So to follow up, so I so I do the normal normal shower every time. I mean, if if it's kind of the time of the year where I'm hunting mornings and I'm hunting evenings, and I'm not hunting during the middle of the day because it just it just isn't time. Then I'm I'm taking two showers a day. Okay, it's just I just never ever hunt without showering. Um, I I do use carbon uh, clothing. Okay, scent locker, scent locker. I've used them both. I I, I think I, I like both of them. I've had good luck. I know how to take care of them. Uh, you know, I roll them right up tight so they can't absorb anything until the moment I open them up to put them on. You know, I believe that uh, that once you put them in the dryer and reactivated them, uh, their their whole function is to absorb odor. So don't hang them somewhere wide open so they can absorb everything else. You know, you should save that carbon to absorb your human body odor. Right. Uh, but say when I cut, when I'm done with a shower, I have a walkout basement with a scent control room, and in that scent control room, I run a ozone machine, uh, 24 hours a day, and it treats all my socks, underwear, t-shirts, sweatshirts, anything that goes on underneath my scent control garments. And each layer that I put on, I cover my body 100% with, uh, these days I use zeolite. I used to use activated carbon, but it's real dirty, hard to get off. And if you're going to do business meeting the public, you you, know, you, know, you might want to look sort of like you took a bath, you know. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I use zeolite, which is a crushed volcanic rock. It's uh, kind of a it's, it's whitish eggshell color. It, it washes off real easy. It uh, doesn't stain the white's carpet and all those good things, you know. 
So uh, you get along better during hunting season with your loved one. And you know, very important. It is, you know. (laughs) So you know, imagine you know you're you're uh, you're putting on your underwear, and boy, I mean, this deal light, and I've got a I, I. I, I put it in these little shaker bottles, you know, and I just shake it all over my body and rub it completely over my body. Then when my T-shirt goes on, I shake it all over the T-shirt and rub it into the T-shirt. And as, and as I dress, and say as the hunting season gets further into the season and we get colder temperatures, then you're putting more more underlayers on. And I zeolite all of those layers. And often, uh, nine times out of the ten, if you know, if, if I have any real distance to walk, my scent lock never goes on until I get to the tree or get to my ground blind. I do I do hunt from a couple of ground blinds because I just love the challenge, and so that goes in the backpack, and then that never goes on until I get because you know you're you're gonna you're gonna uh, sweat, you're gonna exert, you're gonna walk. Uh, one of the farthest stands on this property, t- is, as far as walk, is about three quarters of a mile of walk for me to get to it. And because uh, I have to get around this water and walk over on my mom and dad's property, cross over onto their property to get to this back corner of my property to hunt this one spot that I hunt once, twice, maybe three times a year. But every time I get there, it's the most incredible hunt I've ever had. Uh, well worth the wait then, I guess, uh, right? So, you know, I, so I go through a lot, and, and I'll just follow up with I use a, a carbon mask once I'm at the tree. Okay, so I have my, my scent lock. I'm covered up in zeolite. I mean, I'm doing everything I can to keep any amount of human odor that is on my body coming off of my body being absorbed by something. And what gets past the zeolite gets picked up by the carbon-activated outer garments that I wear. And then I have a carbon mask that I wear. Once I get the tree and get my hat and my face mask and everything on, then that goes on. And, uh, you know, I got to get my video equipment out, my camera arm. And so I got quite a routine getting all ready, you know. Yeah, no, I, I fully understand. I usually do even it's talking about the video equipment. I started self-filming my hunts last year. And so I actually do during the off season, I'll do a handful of uh, voyages up the tree just to kind of get my routine together. So I'm not wasting yeah. time trying to remember so everything goes up. I'm a creature of habit, too. I'm really anal about that type of stuff. Everything has to happen in the same sequence every time. Oh yeah, <laughs> or else, or yeah. else I feel like I'm going to forget something. But you'd mentioned yeah. that stand that you have to take the, the the very long route around to get to. That's kind of in the corner of your property and your in your yeah. folks' po- property. So one of the questions that I was kind of thinking about, and I'm, I'm sure some other folks might be thinking of this, especially when it comes to smaller properties, and say you know your your farm you've been working on for you know several decades now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah. And have it set up, you know, from everything I've seen online and stuff, it's it's set up in with uh, um, great care um, and is obviously producing great results for you as well. So considering that you have, you know, someone has a piece of property that they've done the work that they need to do to, to set up some good quality hunting for themselves. Whenever you're talking about certain stand locations, how many times or how often, especially when you're talking about small properties, should you be hunting these stands before you know, considering that they would be getting burnt out because you don't want to overhunt a location. And what's kind of your rule right. of thumb for that? Well, um, I'll tell you what I live by. And some people will just scratch their head. Um, I can I can hunt a stand the first time I've ever hunted it. Have an incredible hunt like that one I talked to you about. You know, Bill comes in there, eight, eight bucks behind her. Just, it's hot, okay? I will not be in that stand the next day. Right. I just won't get it going. It now the, on this small property to get to give you a little threshold 
67 acres. Got to remember, 20 plus acres of it is flooded timber. So there's really 40 acres of huntable ground. I have uh, 27 to 30 stands on this property. Wow. Uh, some of my really good pinch points and great travel corridors, I will have three stands all within 30 to 60 yards of each other. So I can hunt that same area the next day. I'll just be in another stand 40 yards away. Right. And and that's that's how you get away with it. I, I believe people do not give deer the credit that they deserve. Not only have we walked to that stand and touched things, even though we've taken excellent care in scent control, like it or not, we're going to touch things, pieces of human skin somehow get out of our shirt, uh, and touch the ground, touch leaves. And then we climb out of that stand and we, and we walk out again. So we, So there's two opportunities for us to contaminate that area. All night long, when we're not in that stand, deer are running around, they're learning all kinds of things about us. And I think that's probably one of the biggest, I think that's one of the biggest things that people don't give deer credit for. And, and I, have, I have spent a lot of time refining the bottoms of my boots, okay? And when we talked scent control, I really didn't get into the boots and the separate totes and all the, how I handle the boots, but... Uh, you know, a five-and-a-half, six-and-a-half-year-old doe, if she can walk by my tree stand and actually cross where I walked in, not hesitate, uh, smell the ground, and she just walks by, I know I've done everything right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely I mean, a that's good litmus test. Right there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I've Have you ever used, I know this might be just kind of out of left field here for a second, but have you ever used anything? Because I'm not a big gimmick person and I, I typically kind of stray away from most of the, any of like the cover scents and stuff like that. Like I'm just not, I, I prefer to kind of take the same precautions you take. Um, I don't have a bat cave like you do, like a scent room. Like that's pretty, uh, I kind of want to see what that <laughs> that is. I'm really intrigued by that. Um, but I do take all those precautions, you know, a shower before every hunt and do yep. all that type of stuff. Yep. But the one thing I did start using, and I, this will be the second year that I've used it. I saw success with it last year or what I'm considering to be success. And I want to see if it kind of holds true this year, but I've been using nose jammers specifically. I don't use it the way they kind of describe it on the can. I, I literally spray it on the bottom of my boots to kind of cover me going in. And I've had mature does cross my path and one actually walk up to my tree. Do you use anything like that? Or have you ever used that before? You know, I have not used nose jammer. Um, I, I've watched, you know, I've seen the ads on TV and, and I kind of scratched my head. And I go, okay, you know, we've, we've got this, uh, we've got this chemical going out in the air, and we're going to stop this, you know, we're going to stop deer that are 400 yards away from being able to smell me. Uh, so, you know, I, 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 I can, I can tell you, I've not used it, so I have no experience. It may work. Uh, I'm not a gimmick guy, and right. I try to be. The, my goal is to be the invisible hunter. I don't mm-hmm. want anything that calls me attention to me, and, and I can tell you. You go back 30, uh, 35, 40 years ago uh, when I was in my uh, 20s and 30s. And, uh, you know, and I was a pretty serious hunter, but I was doing all the things that everybody else did, you know. I was getting I was getting the dough urine, and if, if you could buy it, I got a hold of it, okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I ruined more hunts than I, I, just, I just changed. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I literally watched it unfold in front of me enough times to know that I uh, I created my own destiny. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so I haven't. Uh, I have not used it. I've had other people uh, that I don't know that well say they've had good luck with it. So 
So if you've had, if it's worked for you, hey, there's got to be something there that's working, you know. And right. I, I do think that's probably where, where the, if, if there's going to be a revolutionary product, I think that's where it's going to come from. Uh, you know, this scent control is trying to, trying to eliminate what naturally comes out of our body is a big deal, okay? Right. But if, but if we can do something to keep the animal from smelling what comes out of our body, then I, then I think whoever does that and really invents that mousetrap is going to have the ultimate product and is going to be a bazillionaire. Right, and it's just a matter of reducing. Yeah. It's not necessarily you know stopping their scent. It's just dulling it. You know what I mean? And like what I equate to what they kind of how they kind of explain it is it's kind of like you know whenever a uh, when we might smell pepper or something like that, or when you yeah. smell something that's yeah. kind of yeah. uh, familiar to you, but you get a heavy dose of it, it kind of jams you up. <laughs> no, yeah. no pun intended, but jams you up for a second. Um, yeah. I think that that's what their in, their intent is. And you're right. I mean, their olfactory senses are insane. I was I was at a seminar learning about some of this stuff, and their you know their level, their ability to smell is that 24 hours after you cross a trail or cut a trail in the woods, a deer could come by, and not only tell that you were there, but they could tell that Jake was at this spot, Phil was at this spot, and Clint was at this spot over here. They can actually get down to actually tell who the yeah. who the person was, like the specific person. Yeah, because you know what? They are exactly that way with each individual deer in the local deer herd. They know right. exactly who has been where. And I don't know if you've ever hunted from a tree stand and been there at the right time and could smell deer. Oh, man, that's one of my yeah. favorite things. Yeah. I had a buck it, of two years ago roll up on me during the rut that I could smell him before he got to me. Yep. yep. I, had, I have a, a number of times I've got this one just incredible pinch point funnel that is just so much fun to hunt. And, uh, boy, you know, uh, oftentimes you hear the splashing of the water because they cross water as they come mm-hmm. to me. And you'll hear the water, you'll see the ripples in the water, and it's real thick, and you can't see the deer, but you can smell them first. It's like, oh, right. man, that's, you, know, you know that buck smell, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, you get excited. Like, he's coming, he's coming. <laughs> and, and I've actually had big, you know, big does during the rut and smell them, too. They, you know, they got a pretty good odor uh, there for a few days as well. So yeah, they're all I came I came home and told my wife that story and she thought I was crazy that I could smell deer. (laughs) (laughs) But Phil, before those were pretty much all the questions, you know, every you've covered pretty much every topic that I want to cover. And I want to be sensitive to your time because I could sit here and literally listening to you for 24 hours, talk about deer. I'm getting just quite the education. And every time I hear you talk or watch your videos, it's, um, nothing short of uh, of extremely educational. So, Phil, do you have any additional questions before we uh, before we begin to wrap things up here? Um, you're gonna have to let me pick up my brain matter from the floor and put it back where it belongs because my mind's just been blown. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this has all been been awesome, and and it's great because you know the where I hunt is uh is relatively small and even smaller than than what you have jake uh it's just it's a small piece uh behind uh, my parents house and it's more or less where deer kind of funnel in and bed down between going from the woods to feeding and then back um but there's been a lot there's been a lot that you said that i i really relate to uh, in terms of things that I should be considering and also confirmation of things that I have considered and am hopefully doing right. right. Well, so with, uh, with, I'm sorry, go ahead, Jake. No, I, I just think good, you know, good, Phil. As long as, you know, I've always felt that if I can stir the grain, gray matter 
and have somebody rethink how they're doing something. You know, that, that's all good because I love to be challenged and I like to uh, uh, go out of my comfort zone as well. Right. <laughs> right. I think it's good for us. Exactly. Yeah. So with, before we do let you go, I wanted to ask you one more question. And I always kind of like to eat, end each podcast with this question just because it's always nice to kind of get some insight into you know our guests and, and some of the hunts that they've been on so what i want to do is have you take us on a hunt you know your most memorable hunt it could be deer it could be elk it could be bear whatever the case might be but give us every detail tell us what state you're hunting in and give us all the stories from the time you get out of the truck till you get back to the tailgate to tell the uh to, to tell the story when you get back with your with your friends well i'll tell you what i'll, I'll tell you a story about a buck i killed uh, a couple three years ago and uh, B and I live here on the property now, which is so awesome. You know, I'll give you some history. I bought this property in 1981, and for several years I lived uh, 25 minutes away. So I was an absentee landowner, and uh, you know, drove here. But in uh, in 1998, my wife and I uh, decided to sell the house uh, that we had and to uh, get in the process of building our uh, retirement and uh, place to stay here because we wanted to live out here. So anyways, we moved into this house. It, it took a few years to, you know, to get through the building process, keep all the inspectors happy, but we were living here full-time from, from 2000. So in, uh, I believe it was, tw- it was 2014. And the coolest thing, I've always had a uh, desire to, to kill a uh, mature uh, bull moose with a bow. So I had a real good friend of mine. Uh, we spent years, uh, uh, booking this, this moose hunt, but this story isn't about the moose hunt. But, so I, I went on a moose hunt and I, uh, because of bad weather and it was clear up in the Northwest territories, I was gone from home for three and a half weeks. Uh, it was supposed to have been two and a half weeks, but uh, we were snowed in and with float planes when you're on a big lake, uh, clear up in and the Manitoba and Ontario border, you know, they don't come get you until the snow's done. You know? <laughs> get there. You know, it works, you know? And so about every three days, we'd get this message that, nope, you know, we can't come get you until maybe Saturday. And Saturday would come, nope, maybe Wednesday, you know. And the way there was lots of food. But what I'm getting at is uh, I had a really cool buck that I'd been watching for three and a half to four years, and it decided he was my target buck. And I had uh, lots and lots of photos of him, during the uh, during the summertime, you know, bachelor groups and stuff. And just before I left on the hunt in mid-September, I got some good hard antler pictures, and he had readjusted his pattern a little bit, but not all that much. And so, uh, you know, you, so you figure I'm gone from about this time of the year, from 17th to 19th of uh, September, and I didn't get back home until about the 14th of October. And I miss, you know, the first couple of weeks of bow season, but that's no big deal because I don't hunt a lot in early bow season anymore uh, other than maybe just big does. Uh, so the first thing I do is I start moving cameras around trying to figure out where this buck is at. <clears throat> I spend a couple of weeks, and, boy, I can't find him. You know, I'm just not getting any pictures. And so now I'm like, geez, you know, you know the feeling, and, and you probably know this feeling, Bill, and both. Oh, my gosh, somebody's killed it, right? <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had that feeling I'm not getting before. any pictures, you know. And I have this technique that I've learned over the few years, and I've got a couple of locations on this property where deer will leave the property, cross onto the neighbors, and and I'll, and I'll just put kind of a segue. Uh, I have these homebody deer that by the time they get to two and a half years old, they've learned how to live. So they spend the daylight on this property in these great bedding areas. They leave once it gets dark, and they return before daylight. 
and I've watched it play out over and over again on the game camp. So I pick him up, and I'm and I'm catching him moving. He he's moving after just it's you know right at dark, and he's leaving, and he's going over to the neighbors, and he's back before daylight. And uh, so now we're getting close to uh, the end of October, and I'm getting the occasional daylight picture, and I and I go ahead and take a risk middle of the day in a rainstorm and I move a game camera into an area where I've got a small little hourglass food plot with an active scrape, put that camera on there. I give it three days and I go, I can't wait. I got to get in there. I got to find out. we got a front <laughs> coming in tomorrow night. I pull the card and I have dozens of pictures of this buck working the scrape during daylight. <laughs> and I'm like, oh man, you know, he's here. And I, I now, so now I'm convinced he's in a particular bedding area, which is on a on a uh, peninsula, so the hunt starts on a, uh, uh, and this this happens to be November second, and that morning of November second, I hunted a stand where I didn't want to really, I didn't want to pressure him too much. I thought because of the morning, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna go in tight on his bedding area, and although I did see some really good deer, uh, I did not see that particular buck. So I get back in from hunting. I get a call from a real good friend of mine. He says, hey, I've just killed a monster. I need your help. I go over there. I help him out with it. Turned out to be a giant eight point, one of the biggest eight points I've ever scored before, uh, well into the nice. mid-150s as an eight point. Wow. Uh, yeah. so, nice. we, you know, so we high-five and take pictures and all that stuff and, and uh, you know, and, and, you know, congratulate each other. And he goes, well, what are you going to do? And I say, hey, I'm going to go back, take a shower, go hunt. I got a buck I'm going to kill tonight. He kind of <laughs> jokes with me. And uh, so, so you know, I do all my scent control. The wind has shifted to a, a south southwest. Uh, it's it's fair weather. It's November second. I just know that this buck is bedded on this peninsula, and I've got a pinch point funnel ladder stand about twenty two feet up in a double bur oak, giant bur oak, and I've got Christmas tree limbs tied all around so. It's so even when I'm in it, nobody ever knows I'm in this stand, okay? I've never even hunted the stand all year long. So it's November 2nd. I, I slip in really early because that particular night, the moon major was early. It was like 10 or 15 minutes after 4, and it doesn't even get dark until about 6.30, 7 o'clock, okay? So I, I'm in early. Like I'm going to say it's 2.30 in the afternoon. I'm all controlled up, and, and of course... It, uh, you know, I pack in my clothes, my dress, uh, put my, my outer garments on right at the base of the tree. I go up, I, I get my camera, all, all that stuff going. Uh, I shoot a Matthews bow, an old Matthews, but hey, you know, if it still shoots good, you know, why start with anything new? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I'm, I'm in this camera or in this stand. And I'm looking west, and I'm I'm over a, just an incredible area where there's a lot lot of rubs and scrapes, and it's just always been a good area. And the bedding the bedding area is maybe I'm going to say maybe 55, 60 yards away. And, and I'll bet you it took me 30 minutes to go that last 40 yards. Okay, I take a step and then stop, and I mean I just snuck right in. So I get into the stand, I get my camera going. And I'm testing, and you, and you you said, Clint, you, you do a lot of filming. So you yeah. know how you open up your camera and you test it, you kind of zoom in and zoom out, just kind of look yep. into the – and about that time I hear something moving, and here's a two-and-a-half-year-old buck, about a 100 to 110-inch buck, right out in front of me, right where I expect, and he came from this bedding area. 
<laughs> so I'm just kind of zooming in on him. My bow's hanging on the bow hanger. And, I'm, you know, he's out in front of me about 20, 22 yards. And, you know, I'm just looking through the viewfinder at him. And on the edge of the viewfinder, I see this giant rat come into the viewfinder. <laughs> and that buck that I've been trying to hunt has snuck in there, just quiet as a mouse. And he's watching this <laughs> other younger buck uh, working a licking branch and stuff. And, man, I'm, I'm fooling with a camera and my bow's hanging. And I got two bucks within 20 yards of me and my target buck right there broadside at 20 yards. <laughs> and, uh, and boy, I mean, it was a bit tense, but I decided to make the commitment that I was going to get this kill on, on video. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he moved around a little bit and I slid the camera out and zoomed in on him and got my bow down. And uh, basically he, uh, he, there was two or three places where I drew on him and there was a stick or a limb in the way and I let down. And then I think, I think the third time I drew on him, uh, everything was great, and I, I hit what what appeared to be a little bit far back, but because of his angle, it turned out to be a great shot. And uh, you know, he mule kicked, and uh, again, this is like four, just after four o'clock in the afternoon, right at Moon Major. I mean, I shot that deer almost within five minutes of Moon Major. Um, mm-hmm. He spun around. I got a great video. I mean, he was centered in in the frame in the whole nine yards. And, uh, you know, then, then the woods was silent, but when he, he went about 30 to 40 yards away, I saw him come to a stop and I'm watching and I'm watching and it's real thick over there cause he's going back towards the bedding area that he came from, but he didn't make it quite all the way in. And I, and I'm kind of watching and I go, geez, did I just, did I just see him go down? It looked to me like, you know, how you're trying to convince yourself right. that's what you saw, but I wasn't right. sure that's what I saw. So, it's, you know, so it's very early in the, in the hunt yet. And so I get my binoculars out and I look and sure enough, I can, I can find my arrow and it's just red blood arrow. And I, you know, you zoom in with your binoculars and you can see red blood around the arrow on the leaves. I go, yeah, boy, great. You know, everything's just the way I was hoping. So I decided right. I'm going to sit here until dark. There's no reason to push it. And the truth is a bunch of does and fawns and five different bucks came through, but two bucks came in and got downwind to him. And I noticed they would get about where I thought I saw this buck go down and they'd bob their head and move around and and i knew by the last buck i said you know what they smell that dead deer over there they're, they're checking him out right and uh, so it gets almost dark you know when i climb down and i find my arrow and uh, and uh, you know go right to where i i saw him you know run right by the licking branches and do his mule kick and there's a little blood but not a lot because you know a lot of times you make a good hit you know when a deer just flies out of it, it takes 20 30 yards before you start getting any really good signs And where I saw him, I said, well, I'm just going to walk up here where I saw him go into the brush right there, you know. And at about that time, I see a nice big glob of blood, you know, about the size, half the size of my boot right there. And I go, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to see. About that time, there's his belly, you know. Right. And uh, it turned out he was a, uh, just a perfect 10 point, uh, mid 130s and 225 pounds field dress, four and a half years old. Wow. That's that's a, that's a hoss, man. That's a big, that's a big bodied deer there. And that's, it's the longest uh, that's some... deer I've ever killed. I, I've hung a lot of deer here on this place. I've got my spot where I hang them, and that deer, I could not get his feet off the ground. Huh. Wow. So it was a really, really cool deer. And uh, and this year I have one uh, a little better than that uh, that uh, that I've got targeted. So I'm hoping it all plays into the same thing. And he's, he's using pretty much exactly the same uh, uh, pattern and everything. And I just moved some cameras around, and I caught him moving off the property and coming onto the property with the same exact sequence, you know, after dark and, and before daylight. 
and uh, probably right around Halloween or so, I'll, uh, he and I will meet. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Nice. So hopefully what we'll do is we'll plan to have you on again after uh, – after archery season's over to hear the, uh, to hear the story about that one. Oh, Sound like a that, deal? that'd be great. Yeah. That would be awesome. awesome. Well, well, Hey, thanks for, thanks for joining hey, us. I, you know, I, I, I want to so glad you guys, like you can, t- you can tell, I could talk about this stuff forever. And, and I hope, uh, somebody has, has learned a couple of new things and made them think, you know, rethink how they hunt their property, how they design their property. And, and uh, and you know, uh, best of luck to you on your podcast. I've been uh, following your blog and listening to your podcast ever since I heard about you. And pretty cool what you're doing. So, uh, oh, thanks, man. I, I I do appreciate that. Before you before you get going, though, is there any uh, is you want to just give a, a mention as to uh, where some places are that folks can find out some more information about you, your website, and and your social media platforms and so forth? Sure. Oh, absolutely. Uh, my uh, habitat business is uh, just go to habitatsolutions360.com. You can go to my website. I've got some free videos that people can sign up for. You know, it's an autoresponder. You don't get any junk. You just put in your email and your name, and you'll get uh, seven free videos, and you can learn a lot more about what I do and what my philosophies are from that website. And if anybody was interested in, uh, in uh, say, somebody from Michigan here is listening to me and they're uh, curious on uh, listing their property or buying properties, um, go to uh, whitetailproperties.com, go to the agent finder, go to the state of Michigan. I'm right there. There's uh, six of us all together now, agents here in Michigan. So uh, thanks so much for having me on, you guys. Yeah, you bet. Absolutely. And I'll make sure to put the uh, put those mentions in the show links, too. That way, if any of the folks uh, are listening to this, uh, want to hop on there and get oh, a quick link fine. to find some more information about Jake, I'll, I'll make sure that those are in there. So thanks again so much, Jake. I had an awesome time talking to you. Good luck this season. And I'll definitely, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up with you again soon and talk about how your uh, how your 2016 season went. Awesome. And great hunting for you guys to have a safe and, and a great hunting season. All right. Awesome. Thanks, thanks Jake. Jake. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it. All right. Yeah, you're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, that is a wrap for us today, folks. I want to thank Jake for joining us. Be sure to check him out at HabitatSolutions360.com and go give him a like and a follow on his Facebook page. Also, want to give a big thank you to all you folks who are tuning in. Uh, much appreciated that you decide to spend an hour of your your day with us to listen to us talk about deer hunting. Uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please feel free to subscribe to the feed uh, via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And if you're enjoying the uh, content of the podcast, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. We'd be very much appreciative of that. And until next time, we'll see you. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.